Very thankful to be here this morning. Thankful for the opportunity that I have to share a portion of God's Word. I'd like to welcome uh, everybody here and those uh, joining us uh, in Zoom. Glad you can be a part of, of our services this morning. I've entitled my lesson, well, Navigating Our Christian Lives in an Evil World. And we'll get that up here in a minute. But we'll start off by reading Ephesians 5, verses 15. I'm sorry, Mark. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 16. See ye then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And you know, I'm not here this morning to necessarily get bogged down in how bad our world is. I feel like we have more than enough of that outside of this building but as a parent uh, with two young boys, you know, the condition of this world weighs heavy on me. I wonder what type of world my boys will continue to grow up in. You know, before I became a father, I often wondered if I had what it took to lead a family and navigate a family through this world and, and uh, through the evil before us. And I remember just a few months before Sutton was born, I remember sitting right over there, in, the, in, this, in that pew over there and being just absolutely terrified and uh, petrified to be a father, realizing the daunting task that was about to be before me. <clears throat> but in this world, Christians are presented with a load of challenges, parents and, uh, and children alike. In such a politically driven climate we're in right now, it's easy to get sucked into the, thing, to the, to the world, to the things that don't necessarily matter to us actually living a Christian life. It's easy for us to get our priorities mixed up, to see things as a priority that really aren't. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to let our guards down. You know, uh, we hear a lot of lessons about the distractions of the world, the pitfalls in life. And it may be partly where I am in life, but these things are so important to us today. And as I said, I don't want to get bogged down in the mud of the world, but, and I'll, I'm going to try my best to stay out of that. I'm, I want this lesson to be encouraging to us this morning, and uh, I hopefully, hopefully uh, everyone here is. There's going to be a lot of things that we'll cover, a lot of high points, but I believe that this lesson that, that, and the things that we're going to talk about are things that we can truly go forth and study deeper into these subjects that we're going to be talking about. So first, we need to have, uh, when it comes to leading our lives in a Christian world, we need to have a Christian worldview. So let's look again at this passage that we have on the screen. Giving a little context, earlier in this chapter, Paul was trying to show the contrast between light, the light and the darkness in this world. And as we come to this passage, at the end of it all, he says the days are evil. Paul was saying that in his time, 2,000 years ago. And we think about how bad it is right now. Paul was living in a very evil world then. And that's because this world is under the curse of sin. And I would submit to you this morning that the world that Paul was living in might have been even more wicked, especially the, the place that he was in, the countries, the, and the, the places that he was traveling to was much more dangerous for Christians, for, pe for people preaching the gospel. But, you know, the, the world is under the curse of sin, and this is a hard truth, but this is something that us as Christians should accept. 
The world is evil, and that's probably not something that's going to change. Romans 5, verses 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, one man centered into, sin entered into the world, and, by, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And also in verses 18 and 19, it says, Therefore, as by one offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as one, by one man's disobedience we're, we are made sinners, so by the disobedience of one shall many be made righteous. So it was because of Adam's sin that brought condemnation to the world. Christians should view this world as broken, sinful, but in desperately need of a Savior. Through this passage, it talks about through his own righteousness that Christ offered forgiveness and a way for all to come to him and to be made righteous. That's the positive thing. I talked about how Christians should just accept it. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything about this evil world. <clears throat> but we should view this world as in need of a Savior. John, 1 John 5, verses 19 through 21 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Satan rules this world. And acceptance of that will change the way we, as Christians, view the world around, around us. And if we're too comfortable in this world, maybe it's because our view of this world is watered down. It says it lies under the sway of Satan. And you know, this might sound crazy, but have you ever thought about how easy it is to not follow God, to not follow what he's told us to do? How easy is it for us to forget to pray or neglect that or neglect reading our Bibles? And I don't know about all of you this morning, but that is something that I struggle with. And whether you struggle with that or not, we all have a daily battle against Satan that we have to fight against. You know, I think we can sometimes get into this idea of wanting a, a perfect world, wanting to live in a perfect world in this lifetime. You know, Christians and non-Christians alike long for a world where there's peace and unity and justice. And I know it doesn't seem like that but I think right now, but I think that for the most part, people want peace in their lives. But we all have our own ideas of what it takes to accomplish that. A utopian society, that's what we want. But humans are never going to be able to accomplish that. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Christians, though, we understand the cure for that. We read in verses 19, 18 and 19 of Romans 5 earlier, Christ will make his children righteous. Heaven is that utopious, utopian world that we long for, but it's not something that can ever be attained in this physical, carnal world. We have to have an eternal perspective. We need to place our values and our priorities in the things that forward and go to the furtherance of the eternal kingdom, not this physical kingdom, the physical world. And I feel like I don't ever get up here without saying something like that. But it's definitely something that I need to be reminded of every single day. I need to be reminded that this world is temporal. It's going to pass away. So how do we shape our worldview? Whether we thought about it or not, you know, every person has their own perception of the world. Every person on this earth has an idea, whether you're Christian or not, 
about the origin, about your origin. Every person has their own idea of their purpose in this world, and every person has their own idea of their destiny, where they're going to end up. And as Christians, hopefully we're all very settled in those three things. Those answers are easy to answer, right? But I would say that, you know, there's thousands, if not millions, of variations of opinions when it comes to those three things, our origin, purpose, and destiny. You know, one worldview, and it's a, there's variations of it, but is a humanistic worldview. And that rejects the idea of a supernatural being. So atheism, or agnostic, lines up with that. They believe in the human experience and rational thinking that, and those are the things that, only, that provide the only source of knowledge or moral code to live by. My thoughts, my feelings, my opinions. And there's a lot of different variations and beliefs of that, but it all goes back to that. My rationale, my feelings, my thoughts. And you say, okay, how does that apply to us as Christians? Because we're settled in those things, right? We're settled in our worldview. But let's define that phrase, worldview. It governs how, or let's, let's back up. It's not about the physical reality of the world that we live in, but it's a philosophical or ideological reality of the world that we live in. It governs how we live, why we live, and what we live for, what we appreciate, what we reject, what we're passionate about, and what we detest. And I said, so as far as Christians go, the origin, purpose, and destiny, those things are pretty settled. And we probably all give the same answers. What about if we put those things in question form? If someone were to give you those six questions and we were to sit down and answer those, how would we answer them? I think as Christians, we know the correct answer for Christians. We know what we should answer to those questions. But how do our lives reflect and so if we were really truthful about those questions, how would we answer them? In our heart of hearts, how would we answer those, those questions? <clears throat> because we know how we should live. We know why we live, what we live for. We know the things that should be important to us, the things that we should reject. We know the things that Christ said we should be passionate about, the things that we should hate. But all too often... Our lives fail that test because we've adopted some sort of worldly humanistic view that needs to be purged out of our lives. If we're not careful, we can adopt some carnal, worldly way of thinking into our own lives. And I worry that as Christians today, some are not biblically grounded enough to face these views that are being so heavily pushed on us. <clears throat> not only that, they're, they're being pushed on us, but they're being pushed on our children. You know, when I was in, uh, probably in junior high, this is, it was really when there started to be a big fuss over uh, taking prayer out of uh, public school. And since I was young, I heard about how, you know, they're slowly taking God out of this, our schools. They're pushing evolution instead of a uh, creator. But really, it was happening everywhere, everywhere, not just in our schools. But all of that is a danger to our children now. So outside of the church, or hopefully a Christian home, talk of God or spiritual things or the Bible is something that does not happen very often. Parents have to be intellectually and biblically grounded enough to teach their kids because it's not happening anywhere else. 
So what are the things that actually shape our worldview? <clears throat> First of all, if we're Christians, it's God's word. And that can fall, a lot of things can fall under that. Family study time, group Bible studies, worship, what we're doing here. But then there's other things. Social interaction, school, work, friendly gatherings. Uh, you can name off many more. Then you have entertainment, books, music, TV, social media, news, celebrities, personal experiences. So when I say that I, I worry that even adults are not biblically grounded enough, I say that because parents are now taking a back seat to these things. And allowing those things, the so social interactions, entertainment, personal experiences, to, pay, to play major roles in shaping their children's lives. And if we do that, as parents, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Now I want to talk about leading our families in an evil world. I feel like that's a, a, good, a good pivot. I want to first preface this by saying that, you know, given the fact that I've been a parent for almost four years, I'm not, obviously not an expert. And I don't claim to be. I don't want to be uh, someone who lectures you at uh, people that are more experienced, parents that are more experiences, that have more experience. Some might think that I have no authority to, to preach on this subject of parenting, seeing as how our generation seems to be making mistakes left and right, but God is the expert at parenting, and hopefully we can lean on, on the teachings of uh, his teachings of this subject. We'll go back to Ephesians 15, verse 16, says, Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. <clears throat> These are challenging times uh, for parents. And I would say first that the evil has always been there, but the exposure to these things comes at a much, er much earlier for young people now. But this passage to me is one that is so important to remember as parents and, and in our lives. Uh, you know, parents have to always be aware of the potential evil. Walk circumspectly. Uh, circum means uh, circumference, like a circle. Speck means to look. It literally means to look around, watch where you step. You know, and if, if you're at all scared of snakes, then if you're walking through grassland or farmland, you're looking where you're stepping. And that's the thing, though. Uh, even if you're not scared of snakes, you better be watching because there are actual snakes that can kill you out there. And where I live, they're getting even more and more uh, common. We watch our step because we know the serious danger that's out there. And it, we would be foolish not to, right? So I, th I take that to mean that in our lives, in our children's lives, if we choose to have our heads buried in the sand as parents, if we're willingly ignorant and evil, then we're fools. We're not wise. Parents and grandparents, your children could be fighting a battle that you may not know about. And many parents are unaware of the things that they should be aware of that's going on in their, in their kids' lives. You know, it's interesting. Uh, in my lifetime, I've seen technology and Internet and all that really take off. I mean, when I was in first grade, that was the first time that I ever heard of the idea of the Internet or search engines. And... Um, so I really grew alongside that, alongside that technology growth. 
So my generation was really the first to be in tune with tech and all that. And because we were in school and around technology every single day, it became where me and my brothers were way better at that computer stuff than my parents. And since they've caught up, I'm not being critical of them. They, were, they, made, uh, uh, they, they made sure to protect us from, from things like that. But as technology became more advanced, I think that a lot of that generation of parents were ignorant to the, to the dangers that the tech broom created for children and for teenagers. It was a really, and, and still is, a very difficult thing to combat. But I think a lot of parents now who are, actually, who are raising children now are more attuned with that. But it still seems that children know more about the internet than, than even their parents do. And I say that to make the point that we have, we have to be aware of not only things like that, but any danger that may be presented to our children. Proverbs 22, verses 3 says, A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and, pass on and are punished. Excuse me. <clears throat> so if we look, under, look at that under the context of parenting, we have to be able to foresee the evil. And I believe that as I continue to raise my boys, this might be one of the most difficult things to do. Having to foresee, see into the future, so to speak, for a potential threat to my family. The only thing that I can say is that we, we have to be constantly alert. We have to be constantly keeping a watchful eye, not only if we're parents, but just living a Christian life. We have to be in a constant watch for our spiritual well-being. You know, in this country today, we cannot place a value on parents, on a father and mother that teaches their children to be strong Christians. We can't place a value on a father that teaches their boys and their daughters what it means to be a strong Christian. Families today are starved for strong leadership in the home, strong male and, and motherly leadership. They need a father to, to stand up and lead a family. And I believe that if you, ever, if you even want to begin to talk about fixing our culture, it begins with the families. 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 11 through 12 says, As you know how we have exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you should walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The writer here is using an illustration that describes a godly father caring for his children. That father encourages and comforts his children but also pushes them and disciplines them to walk in the light of God's word. And the one thing that that tells me is that God's description of a godly father is not in any way passive when it comes to leading his children. Fathers cannot at all be passive. If Satan can neutralize the man, then he is neutralized and he can cripple the family. <clears throat> and you know, he works the same way in the church. If Satan can neutralize the elders in this church, then he can severely damage the congregation as a whole. Think about it. We often pray for our elders. In this crazy time that we've been in, we have continually asked, they have continually, continually asked for prayers on their behalf to help make them make the right decisions so they can effectively lead this congregation. And the things that 
we are dealing with in this world, they weigh heavily on our elders' minds. Us as members, we recognize the importance of strong leadership in this congregation, don't we? Fathers and mothers, do we handle our families with the same importance? As, we sh- as a shepherd watches for the flock, are we keeping a watchful eye for our family's survival? You know, we've probably heard this saying before that, that culture beats strategy. And I don't necessarily agree with that saying completely. Uh, you know, we're talking about strategy this morning. But that saying lends to the idea that we can't just take our, church, our kids to church three times a week and expect them to turn into good Christians. Our children can know what the Bible says, but if they're not internalizing it, then it's pointless because when they grow up, they won't be led to live like Christians. The truth is that what anyone says up here will have far smaller impact on children compared to what they are seeing modeled in the home. Preachers can never outdo what a parent can do for children in their home. And that's what I mean when, by culture beats strategy. Parents, no one can outdo what you can do. Nobody. Deuteronomy 6, verse 7 says, You shall teach them, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall walk, talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So the more, most important thing that we can give our children is teaching them about God in the home. Teaching them, to pattern, teaching them a pattern of Christian living. You know, there's so many things competing for our children's attention today, and we've talked about that. Whether we're parents or not, we realize that there's so many things distracting us and pulling us away from what's truly important. These things are distracting us from being a family, from studying the Bible as a family. We can't Forget the value that comes with being a family. We have to redeem the time, like, that script, like Ephesians said. Enjoy and take advantage of the time that we've been given right now. We can't forget also the blessing that comes with teaching our children. Psalm 78 verses 5 through 7 says, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, that the children who would be born, they that, are, they, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may sit, set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Do we see the future blessing in teaching our children? It's not just about my children, but it's hopefully a perpetual thing that will go from generations to come. Because if I teach my kids and not hide God from them, then, and keep God in the forefront of their minds, and hopefully they'll do the same, and hopefully my grandkids will do the same. How many of us can look back to parents and grandparents and even great-grandparents, and you might remember things about them or hear stories about them, but you can see where you are today in large part because of them, because of what they did in their homes. Or maybe it's a friend or a brother that's taught you, and because of that, hopefully your children and your children's children will be blessed. We have a great opportunity as parents to, to bear fruit in that way. In our homes, we can bear fruit through our children. 
And that's the thing that moves through the generation, that, and that's something that is a blessing in sitting down and teaching, with, teaching our children. <clears throat> Next, we need to be led by the Spirit. If we're ever going to be effective in living and leading our families in this evil world, we have to be led by the Spirit. And again, this is a, this is a very big subject, and I'm obviously I'm going to hit some high points on this, but it's something I would encourage you to, to continue to study. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? And this is not uh, official uh, definition, but it's, it's something that came to the, fir- the forefront of my mind. It's allowing our life's decisions to be dictated or be led by the Word of God. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 17 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So this passage here shows that it's much more than just following the Word of God. Being led of the Spirit is not simply a passive surrender. A Spirit-led life, though, is a life of conflict because it's in constant combat with the flesh. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. So being led by the Spirit is more than just seeking to be a good person. We can try all day long to be good people, but if we're not actively resisting evil and the appearance of evil and temptation, then we're going to fail. We have to actively and daily reject evil every single day. And obviously, study and meditation is a crucial part in that matter. The word is referred to as the sword of the Spirit. When you put on the armor of God, the word is a sword of the Spirit. So in the same context of the Spirit warring against the flesh, it stands to reason that we should take God's Word, the sword of the Spirit, to battle our flesh. It's not just something for good living. Hebrews 4, verses 12 says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, this is a perfect illustration of the power that Scripture has and can have in our lives. I think that any of us can think back to personal experiences in our own life and see the impact that study and meditation has had in our lives. Perhaps you know of times in your past where you weren't so strong in the Scriptures. You didn't let it guide your life like you should have, and you see that contrasted from the times that you actually were putting in that time in the scriptures. And honestly, with the access to technology that we have today, we can always be filling our minds with, with, uh, with spiritual things. There's endless sermons to listen to on, on podcasts. There are other scriptural-based podcasts that we can listen to. That's just uh, the tip of, of what we can do to put spiritual things into our minds. So honestly, we have no excuse at all to not be getting at least some time every day to hear or put the Word of God into our minds. And if we actually commit to doing that, it's going to change our life. 
You know, there's a big difference between knowing what the Scripture says and being led by it. It's not modification, it's a transformation that it will play in our, in our, uh, in our hearts and in our lives. So instead of having this live and let live attitude, we will actually see evil and sin as a detestable thing. We go back to that test, right? We'll see sin as something that we reject to the core. We'll see the destructiveness of sin and truly see a value in other people's souls. It'll lead us to have compassion for other people. And you know, a lot of this, what I'm saying, comes from my own personal experience. I know a stark contrast in the Sawyer who just tries to be a good person and the Sawyer who wants to literally be led by the Word of God. Because I've seen both in my life. The first, even though he tries to be a good person and says he tries to be a good Christian, he's cynical, he's apathetic, and ultimately ineffective and unfruitful. And latter, the latter hopefully could pass that test that we talked about, and his heart of hearts could pass that test, could truly reject the evil, could truly be passionate about other people's souls, about leading my family. <clears throat> so if I'm being led by the Spirit, it could only, I could only truly pass that test instead of give some Christian boilerplate answer. So what should our response to evil be? Let's look at John 7, verses 1, and also 6 through 7. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, and he did not want to walk to Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now down to 6 and 7. And Jesus said unto him, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Go up, you go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast. My time has not yet fully come. What I want to focus on is what he said there. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You know, this passage right here is, is honestly why I built this lesson to begin with. It goes back to the world being under the curse of sin. And that's why the world hates Christianity, because it stands for good and it stands against evil and immorality. People don't want to be held accountable for their actions. And that's why, and that's why we see uh, laws being put into place that defend immorality and laws that are anti-Christian. But Christ said, they don't hate you, they hate me. <clears throat> and they hate me because I testify that what they're doing is evil. <clears throat> And you know, we can, uh, if we do endure suffering in this world, at least we can be sure that we have Christ on our side. If God be for us, who can be against us, right? You know, I heard a saying, it's, it's kind of funny, but it said that as Christians, we're called a number of things. We're called bigots and zealots and extremists. And then he said, we're called nuts, but we're fastened to a good bolt in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> But this passage, when, it, when I came across it the other day, it really hit me hard. And it, but it's really self-explanatory, but I feel like it's so profound. As is a lot of things that Christ said, but this, this really hit me hard. I almost picture Christ just standing in front of his people, leading the way with his arms out, protectively shielding his flock. We have Christ on our side in this evil world. 
And it's funny, too, under the context of this verse, he was pretty much telling his disciples, you could be killed at any time. The reason he didn't go to Judea is because it wasn't his time yet to die. But he said, don't worry. They don't hate you. They hate me. The things that Christ and his disciples were fighting for were not of this carnal world, were not of this physical world. He had an eternal kingdom in mind. That's why he said, don't worry, your time is always ready. 1 Peter 3, verses 10 through 15. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But in, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happier ye, and be afraid not of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and, and always be, re be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that lies within you with meekness and in fear. Now, I really love when Scripture does the talking for us. And in this passage, I feel like it's a great summary of our lesson this morning. You know, I think it's really easy today in the face of e evil to, to think that we should just retreat from the evil the best we can. Try to, you know, this live and let live attitude and say, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to hunker down, stay in my Christian bubble and, and live my good life. But the truth is, is we cannot do that even if we wanted to. We always have to be ready to give an answer like the scripture says. This is a quote from Dr. James Dobson that I thought was, was uh, fitting. It says, We will not be permitted to exercise our beliefs in private. The church will not be allowed to protect its precepts. Our Christian enclaves will be invalid. The building that we, that we come in will be invalid. We will either speak up or submit in silence. Why not use our voices now while the memory of uh, Christian morality and ethics still lingers like a rare perfume within the modern culture. We have something that is so rare to find these days. You know, the light is always brightest in the dark. We have a great opportunity to be example, an example for good in this world, but all too often we waste our opportunity for, for whatever reason. It's easy to get distracted uh, about the world and the state of it, it's easy to focus our attention on things that don't really matter. <clears throat> it's easy to focus on trying to fix this present world, trying to fix the state of our country, trying to vote in the right people that will hopefully save America, right? But honestly, that's not a perspective that, that Christians need to hold. To think back to what we said earlier, this world is in desperate need of a Savior, and that's the most important thing. It's in need of fathers and mothers who will stand up and lead their families. You know, I said it a couple weeks ago in my chapter study, but our political affiliations mean nothing to God. Our identity should not be in political stances that we might hold. Our identity should be in Christ. And I'll leave you with one last thought. <clears throat> During the Cultural Revolution in China um, in the 1960s, I believe, Christians in that country were very heavily persecuted, and they still are today. 
And the government at that time and still does everything they can to keep Christianity out of the minds of their citizens and to punish people for practicing it, punish preachers for preaching it. They went so far as to etch crosses off of people's gravestones. They didn't want the symbolism even of Christianity to be anywhere present in their country. And in the 1960s, when all of this started, there were an estimated 500,000 Christians in that country. Today, they're believed to be over 50 million to 100 million Christians in China. So the growth of Christianity thrived under persecution. Christianity can thrive under the worst conditions, and we see history after history after history lesson showing us just that. God's people traditionally have not had political freedoms like we do uh, today, or religious freedoms like we do today. You know, our freedoms and the blessings that we have in this country are great blessings, but they're just that. They're blessings that we're enjoying. Seeing as how, like I said, you know, God's people have suffered all through time, and I don't think God cares much today about our personal freedoms that we enjoy in America. In contrast, he wants us to redeem the time like we talked about. Our freedoms can be taken away at any instant. Like most physical things in this life, they're not essential to the eternal kingdom. God cares about if our heart belongs to him and if our family's hearts belong to him. Our job is not to save America or to preserve our freedoms, but our prime responsibility is to stand up for Christ and show the world his redeeming power and show our families. Show the hope that lies within you. Always be ready to give an answer. That's all I have prepared this morning. We'd like to now well, uh, offer an invitation song, invitation to anybody who uh, is in need of the prayers of the church. If you, are, uh, if, you, if you have studied and desire to obey your Lord in baptism, or if you need the prayers of the church, we ask that either one would come as we stand and sing the song of invitation.